Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promise that one day your Son, Jesus Christ, will return to live and reign, that we may live and reign in him for eternity and in your presence. Help us not grow weary in the things that you have called us to, but help us to live in hope every day and every hour. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Remember, 10 or 15 years ago, there was a guy that made national news because he decided, he had calculated and figured out that Jesus was coming back on a certain day at a certain time. Does does anybody else remember that? I remember it really vividly because I know what I was doing at that time. Anyway, he had a lot of money and and he, he had radio stations at his disposal, so he was able to kind of broadcast this out, which then got both a lot of Uh, people making fun of him, and a lot of people really amped up that, well, maybe Jesus is, in fact, coming back at this time. I remember, because I was still working in a lab, and the the room that I had to work in, it was was a weekend, and I had to go in, and I was all by myself, and I didn't have any rooms, and, and even though, like, the prediction was vague, and I didn't really think that Jesus was coming back at that time, although it was certainly possible that Jesus could come back five minutes from now and interrupt my poorly crafted sermon. It was still a really creepy feeling knowing that somebody was really certain that that the world was going to come to an end and Jesus was going to come back. Well, I couldn't see a single thing except for the little room that I was working in at that time. And so I did my work and I got done and I kind of opened the door from the room and peeked out the window and sure enough, the sun was still out. The, the, The world hadn't fallen apart. Nothing was on fire and the world went on. As a culture and as a church, we're kind of obsessed with this idea of knowing when Jesus is coming back and exactly how it's going to happen. To quote one of the commentators that I read usually when I'm preparing for this series through Mark, he writes, the mischief caused by the misuse of eschatology, that is your $10 word for the day, which means the study of the end of times, the mischief caused by the misuse of eschatology, not in the least in contemporary America, has resulted in a virtual eclipse of eschatology in the life of the church. The unfortunate circumstances, both in its abuse and subsequent neglect, has weakened the church rather than strengthened it. Now I hope as we work our way through this, what is sometimes called little apocalypse of St. Mark's gospel account, that we won't be weakened, but we will be built up in the way that the text intended us to. Because we want to have a biblical worldview about the end of times. But the reality is a biblical worldview of the end of times leaves a lot of mystery. It will happen. That is the promise that is made again and again and again in Scripture. But when and how it will happen is unclear. So people overemphasize it and try and make Scripture say something it is, something that it doesn't say, or they completely ignore it, as this commentator points out. There's really kind of one or one or two ways, as opposed to being comfortable in that mystery that is presented here. The point of this passage isn't meant to be this roadmap. First this will happen, then this will happen, then this will happen. But it's meant to encourage the disciples and all Christians who came after them to persevere through the hardships that we will inevitably face. 
Much of modern eschatological thinking, end of times thinking, tries to shield Christians from any sort of pain. And instead of recognizing the reality that we will pass through hardship, we will pass through tribulation, we will pass through sorrow, and we will pass through difficulties. In fact, most biblical literature having something to do with the end of times makes two points. To those who don't believe, it is repent, because God is just and will make all things right. And therefore, for those of us who are seeing the world and wondering how this injustice can can continue on, it says, persevere. Persevere, because in the end, Christ will break all things right. In the end, persevere to the end, because it is better to face, because the end, that what we will experience in the end, sorry, will be better than anything that we face today. The passage starts with this contrast, this sharp contrast from the previous 23 verses which we went through last week. And it starts with this, this, this statement, but in those days after the tribulation. And the but is meant to kind of draw us onward and show us something different, something next. If you read half a dozen commentaries then on this passage, you'll see half a dozen understandings of of what Jesus is trying to say here. It is is a little baffling and confusing in points. From the beginning, a continuation, from from some of the hypotheses start with this being a continuation of what will happen immediately following the temple, all the way to being something that we should be looking forward to happening somewhere down the road. But, but we'll unpack what we know to be true, at least. In verses 24 through 26, Jesus uses words that are drawn almost exclusively from Old Testament prophets. And in each and every one of these cases, the words that he's drawing have directly to do with God's coming judgment. So when this imagery is used, it's likely Jesus is intentionally drawing it because those who would have heard him would know that he is talking about a coming day of judgment. In other words, in those days, these days that Jesus is talking about, judgment will come. And then we get to verse 26 where Jesus talks that the Son of Man will be coming in clouds with great power and glory. This is taken directly out of Daniel 7, which describes the coronation of this Son of Man, which is, of course, Jesus, into an eternal kingdom in heaven. Part of what Daniel drives at is that that, that this Son of Man will one day rule over all of the earth. So yes, sometimes there will be bad governments like the governments that they saw in Babylon and and so on and so forth. But we need not fear because ultimately this Son of Man will reign. Now part of the confusion here is that Christ is already seated at the right hand of the Father, right? We, We confess that week in and week out, day in and day out when we pray the daily office, whenever we recite either the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, we confess that Christ is already seated at the right hand of the Father. But how the church has long understood another thing to be true, that Christ's second coming will return. And this will be the fullness of his coronation, the fullness of realization of every single person in the world, that Christ is Lord. 
It will no longer be hidden and required to be taken by faith. It will be seen and known. And when this happens, the angels will collect the elect. I didn't really mean to rhyme there, but... When this happens, the angels will collect the elect. That is, the angels will go out and bring every single person who believes in Christ in before his throne. The implication is that the coming of Christ, the realization of the fullness of power, there will be, by this time, there will be believers in every corner of the world, as we see slowly happening through missionary work. The vision we get of this is in Revelation in Revelation is absolutely astounding. In chapter 7, perhaps is the most amazing one of these. The, 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 revel, the, the vision is revealed to John, and he, he writes, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne of the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. He has another vision like this in chapter 19, where he describes what their singing sounds like. He He heard a great multitude, a voice, like the roar of many waters, the sounds of mighty peals of thunder crying out. In the end of days, God will gather to himself a whole multitude, men and women from every tribe, every nation, every language, from all over the world, who will sing his praise. The promise that in the end, every saint that has lived is living today and will live in the days to come, will be gathered before the throne of God will be gathered to sing his praise. This is an incredible, incredible promise that I can only imagine. Perhaps one of my favorite things about my position is when we get to gather together on Sunday mornings and everybody's in a good mood and and really energetic, not those Sundays where everybody's kind of tired and and draggy. Those, Those aren't quite the same, but of course we never have those, right? But when everybody feels great and is singing loudly and I can close my eyes and to some extent I can pick out your voices because I know them well enough, but other extent they blend together in this beautiful way that, that is really moving and, and incredible. And perhaps you've noticed that when you're singing as well. Now magnify that by millions. That's what John describes this day will be like. That's incredible. With the reality of seeing God face to face added to that. Now we see dimly, Paul writes, one day we will see him face to face. What a sweet hope that is. Jesus then turns his focus to knowing what those days are will be like, or when those days will come. And he uses this image of a fig tree as something of a harbinger of the things to come, a sign of the things to come. And the fig tree is interesting, and why he uses it is pretty important, because when the fig tree in the Middle East bears its, its leaves, it just takes a matter of a couple of months to go from its first leaf to its first fruit. 
And so he's saying, when these things happen, it will happen quickly. And then, of course, verse 30 becomes confusing, right? Because in verse 30, he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And one of two common readings happens here, and I go back and forth. So if you ask me tomorrow, I'll disagree with what I say today. So the first reading that is, is very common is that what he is speaking of right now in this passage is what happened happened in Jerusalem in 70 AD. And that makes sense when he says this generation will pass away because many of the disciples were still alive in that day. But the other way to read it is to understand generation, how generation is often used in the Old Testament. Especially in in Genesis, it's used as these are the generations of, and then there's a lineage, and then it kind of tells what happens in that span of time, and it it acts as almost a chapter marker, and then the next generation, and, and there's several generations, and what happens in that generation, and so on and so forth. And perhaps how we can read this, and and this is where I'm leaning today, don't ask me tomorrow because I might answer differently. But today, I, I think that this might be what he's talking about, is that this generation of the church will not pass away. It will instead persevere to the end. In other words, when Jesus talks about the elect, the elect will never pass away. They can rest in him. This is a sweet promise, the perseverance of the saints, that he will bring you to the end of your race. He will bring you to God. Christ will never forsake you if you are in Christ, because he has sealed you with his blood. And this is reiterated, of course, in verse 31, where he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Christ and his promises, the word of God, will never be untrue. Jesus will return as he will never be untrue, because Jesus is eternal just as his promises are eternal. But then Jesus makes another statement that is often equally confusing. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Jesus will return in the fullness of time, but the timing of his return is veiled to all humans, including the incarnate Christ. So in other words, when Christ took on flesh, the reality of when he would come back was veiled to him. And the reason reason of this veiling is twofold. The first reason is that in the early, we get an example from in the early church, is there was a misunderstanding to them about baptism. What they thought about baptism is you could be baptized once, which we believe and agree with, and it would cleanse all of your sins, where we would say it would cleanse you from your original sin. But then they found, well, it, what, what happens if you sin again? They didn't know what to do with that. They... they They had a trouble articulating, well, if you sin again, you need to repent. You need to repent again and again and again. And so there were people in the early church who would believe in Jesus, but would wait and wait and wait to be baptized until the very end of their life so that they could be washed completely clean in baptism. 
Of course, we laugh and chuckle at this, but, but, but the reality is, is, is they, they thought that, well, if this happened, okay, we can, we can wait and then be made clean. But what they missed out was, was a life, a full experience of living in the church, of living fully in Christ. Likewise, I think we can posit, if we knew that Jesus was coming back at 345 on March 24th, I don't think that, by the way, it's possible. I just made up a random number. There would be many who would choose to eat, drink, and be merry until 330 on March 24th. Again, denying them the sweetness that is abiding in the fullness of Christ. But there's a second person, a second reason why this is veiled to us. The purpose of eschatology, that is, again, the study of end times, isn't for human beings to fully understand when or how it will happen, but it is to encourage you. It is to encourage you to know that it will happen, that you can have hope even when the sun grows dark, even when the stars fall, even when you see these signs that Jesus spelled out, Even when you see earthquakes, when you see wars, when you see meteor showers, when you see eclipses, all these things that could feel mysterious or scary, you can have hope. And the reality is we've seen all of these things. And yes, we should be prepared for Christ's return. But likewise, we should have hope that he is going to return and rejoice in that truth. Because you will suffer now. You will have heartache and sorrow now. Perhaps even you have that today. But the point that we drive home is have hope. Know that your Savior will come. Know that he will make all things right. He will judge the unrepentant and the unjust. He will mend your pain. He will heal your broken heart. He will Wipe away your tears. What then is the point of all of this? A better question, perhaps, is how shall we live till the end? Verses 33 through 37 wrap this up really nicely, where Jesus uses a synonym of some form of being awake four times. He commands us to be awake four times. In fact, in the ESV and most translations, have an aversion to using exclamation points, and and that's probably a good thing because exclamation points don't make particularly good writing. But a better way to have translated verse 33 would have been with exclamation points. Something along the lines of watch out, exclamation point. Be alert, exclamation point. Because we do not know the hour when Jesus, when the hour when Jesus will come to us. So watch your lifestyle and remain awake in Him. We cannot, we can be often tempted towards self-righteousness, which is stuffy and pompous. But what Jesus calls us away from, when Jesus calls us away from his sin, he calls us to holiness, towards an abiding hope that Jesus is sanctifying you, an abiding hope that Jesus will work in your heart and make you more like him, an abiding hope 
that you are dwelling in Christ, that it is his spirit dwelling in you that draws you closer and closer to the holiness of God. So this call is a hatred towards sin towards a, and a desire towards fleeing back to Christ every time you stumble and sin. Likewise, he calls us to perform our duty, the, the, the gifts and callings that we have been given well. He uses this illustration of a man leaving his house to his servants. And you might be able to imagine this. You have the servant that, that does the kitchen stuff. And you have the servant that cleans. You have the servant that keeps watch. And each of them have a job. And, G, and, the, serv- and the master of the house leaves them expecting that, well, he's gone. When he comes back, the kitchen will be clean. The floors will be mopped. No robbers will have broken in because the guard was on guard the whole night. Likewise, you and I are called to use our gifts well. Because you, each of you have been given specific gifts to be used in this specific season. So be good stewards of them. The fact that Jesus could return at any time isn't meant to be a scare tactic. But it is a reason to live with purpose today. To live with a desire for holiness today. And a reason to have hope. Because the end is this culmination of all your truest hopes found in Christ. Too often eschatology is used to strike fear into people. But Jesus' calling here is simple. Walk faithfully. Stay awake in the faith. The point of so much eschatological writing in Scripture isn't to tell you when or the exact nature of how the end will come. It is to call the sinner back to God and to give hope to the faithful. If you are fleeing from Christ today, please heed his warning. He is calling to you. He is calling you home, calling you to abide in him, calling you to repent of your sins and have a hope that is deeper than anything you've ever experienced before. If you are in Christ, cling to this hope. Have hope. There will be perfect justice. There will be eternal joy beyond your wildest imaginations. The descriptions of the end aren't there to scare you. They're there for you to know the end will come. There may be moments of heartache. There may, but the end is just the beginning. The end opens the door to eternity with Christ. The end is a reason for hope. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost.